0: We have to get companies prepared. We have to get governments prepared. We have to get nonprofits and associations and like school systems. Like all these people need to understand AI at a deeper level so they can figure out what it means to their domain, their industry, their business. And that's going to take a whole community of people moving in the same direction. Welcome to episode 81 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Paul. We are both in Cleveland at the moment. (laughs) I will not be for long. Uh, It is January 29th, 9 a.m. I actually get to go tomorrow back to Ohio University, which is, as you know, where I graduated from, to lead a workshop for a group of executives from Brazil, which should be really cool and then i am on a flight to arizona um to spend some time uh talking with lawyers about the impact of ai so it should be a fun week and actually i am in the midst of recording my piloting ai 2024 courses which i know you have already done your part <laughs> we'll we'll talk a little bit about what we're doing with ai education in, in a few minutes as one of the topics today but um The big thing we're doing initially is this piloting ai series which we launched last year and had over 800 people go through that and get certifications in piloting ai so mike and i are doing a full refresh and uh mike did his part (laughs) and i am i am uh getting my part done as well but those are going to be launching here in a couple weeks so i am in the midst this week of also recording i think i have nine courses i'm i'm doing or something (laughs) like that with with the welcome so It's a a busy week, but it's a fun week. It's cool to be able to do this kind of stuff. Um, Mike and I, I think we're both excited for this episode. You know, we usually, in our Zoom sandbox, like Mike and I kind of share links throughout the week of things to talk about. And in a normal week, it's it's probably like maybe 20, 25 links. This week, I think we might've hit 40. Like there was just so much happened last week and it was kind of hard to curate it down. But Mike does a great job of kind of, Getting us focused in on the key topics and then the rapid fire items. So we have a ton to talk about today and some topics that I'm personally really excited to get into. So with that being said, let's uh, first thanks BrandOps, our sponsor for today. Many marketers use ChatGPT to create marketing content, but that's just the beginning. When we sat down with the BrandOps team, we were impressed by their complete views of brand marketing performance across channels. Now you can bring BrandOps data into ChatGPT to answer your toughest marketing questions. Use BrandOps data to drive unique AI content based on what works in your industry. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show to learn more and see BrandOps in action. And this episode is also brought to us by Marketing AI Institute's AI for Writers Summit, which is coming in hot. <laughs> it's as <laughs> March 6th, like, that's only like five weeks away or something. And February is a short month. Uh, yeah, I don't want to think about this because <laughs> this is like once I get through this week of all these presentations and the courses, this is like my, my next thing is getting ready for Writer Summit. So uh, registration looks phenomenal. I think we're over a thousand already registered. We hit uh, 4,000 registered in 2023 at the inaugural virtual summit. So this is a half day virtual event. There is a free registration option. It is from noon to four Eastern time. Uh, If you are international and can't make that, there is an on-demand option as well. Um, So again, yeah, it's just incredible. We've got talks on uh, sort of the state of for writers. Mike's going to talk about writers' tools. I'm going to do an interview uh, with an IP attorney about the impacts of copyright and intellectual property uh, related to generative AI. We're going to have an awesome panel on the adoption of AI writing platforms within enterprises, There's going to be a a demo day style thing. We're going to go through, we haven't finalized how many, but we're going to try and do like five to seven demos of Gen AI tools that are valuable for writers and editors and content marketers, and then wrap it up with a big uh, ask me anything session with like four or five of the presenters from the day. So it's going to be a ton packed in, but you can go check out AIWritersSummit.com. If you want to go direct to it, you can also find it on the Marketing Institute site under events if you're there. Okay, uh, so that that is the uh, presented by part of the session, and now, Mike, let's get into the big topics for the day.
1: All right, Paul. So, first up, we just got some very big AI news in the agency world. Uh, the world's largest ad group is actually spending three hundred twenty-six million on AI in the next three years. Now. Hopelessist Group is building what they call the industry's first AI-powered intelligent system, and it is called Core AI. This is a central AI system that's going to be accessible by all 100,000-plus of this group's employees. Now, the company's CEO told Adweek, quote, we are bringing together all the data of the group, all the knowledge of the group. And the publication actually says that Core AI is being built and trained in-house by a whopping 45,000 engineers and data scientists. It's being trained on the firm's trillions of data points, billions of personal profiles and daily bid impressions and millions of creative assets. So basically the vision that Publicis has is having each employee plug into this centralized intelligence anytime they are doing work for clients. So For instance, you could instantly converse with the company's decades worth of proprietary data, knowledge, and expertise. In other words, it kind of sounds to me like they're building an ultra-intelligent machine brain that sits at the center of the company and augments each human employee. So, Paul, you obviously have some deep experience in the agency world, having been an agency owner for much of your career so far. What did you make of this announcement?
0: Yeah, th- this one, um, it got a lot of views and shares within my network. I had multiple friends text me like as soon as this video hit uh, to make sure I saw it. And I did finally sit down uh, Sunday night and watch this and took a lot of notes. Um, so the the first thing I want to touch on is um, what they presented is a pretty remarkable vision. It It is not reality at the moment. So the things they're showing aren't necessarily the capabilities of the current system. It's, it's kind of like what they're building. That being said, um, the, the way that it was presented, there was one moment, Mike, where you, I don't know if you caught it, but Artur, the CEO, um, of Pulisist group was talking about this kind of like intelligence engine. They were building this intelligence system within the company, the core AI you mentioned. And I thought, oh my god, like that is the closest vision I've heard yet to the thing that started our pursuit of all of this. So, quick origin story for anyone who hasn't heard it yet: the the way Mike and I got into AI goes back to 2011 when IBM Watson won on Jeopardy, and So what happened was I was, you know, I had my agency at the time, PR 2020, where Mike was working as a content strategist and specialist and, um, you know, helping run accounts for clients. And so when Watson won, I was writing uh, my first book, The Marketing Agency Blueprint. And after I finished that manuscript, I started trying to figure out what was Watson and how did it work and how did it make its predictions and how did it answer questions on Jeopardy and things like that. And so I started kind of researching what was Watson and could we eventually apply it to marketing strategy for clients? So at, at the agency, clients would come to us and they would want to grow their audience or generate more leads or increase the quality of leads or increase conversion rates or drive traffic to the site or whatever their goal was. And then we would try and build strategies and allocate budgets to do it. So a client would come in and say, hey, we have $100,000, we have a million dollars, whatever it is, this is the budget, this is the goal we want to achieve. And so by 2011, I had become convinced that the human mind was actually incapable of doing that in an optimal way, that when I got out of college in 2000, there was like 10 ways to spend marketing dollars. You know, you had direct mail and PR and advertising and communications and all these things, but it was a pretty basic formula to figure out how to, how to allocate that, those dollars. By 2011, when Mike and I were working with companies in healthcare and in SaaS and I don't know. I'm like, what else? Professional services. Like mm-hmm. there's all these industries we're working in and someone would come to us and want a strategy. It's like, shoot, man, there's like 10,000 ways to spend this money. And how mm-hmm. are we supposed to know that? Even though I consider myself a pretty decent marketing strategist at the time. So my vision was, well, what if this Watson thing can do this? Like what if, what if AI is actually the way to solve strategy that, the AI isn't limited in what it can do. So right after I finished the first book, I ended up reading this book called Automate This by Christopher Steiner in 2012. And that book told the, the story of intelligent algorithms being applied to industries like logistics and finance, talked about trading on Wall Street, and how they were applying, that time it was machine learning, like making predictions basically, uh, to disrupt industries. And so I thought, well, that's going to come to marketing, right? Like that's advertising is absolutely like a a prime way to do that. So two years later in 2014, I wrote my second book called The Marketing Performance Blueprint. Mike helped me research a section where we it was the first time where I wrote about AI. And so we did research to try and figure out what was going on right now. Was Watson or was any form of AI actually being applied in businesses outside of what we are reading about and Automate This. So by that point in 2014, I sort of developed this idea that I was calling an intelligence engine. So in the 2014 book, you can go, go read it. It is the only part about AI in that entire book. It's a 50,000-word manuscript, and there is one section of one chapter about it. And I'm going to read it to you because I think it's extremely relevant to what Publicis is now doing. So this again is an excerpt from Marketing Performance Blueprint in 2014. The the header is Origins of the Intelligence Engine. Marketing automation platforms save time, improve efficiency, increase productivity, and help manage big data. They give companies unprecedented abilities to understand buyers, identify opportunities, track campaign performance, and link marketing activities to business outcomes. But they do not provide insight into the billions of bits of data being created as consumers move from screen to screen and interact online and offline with brands. According to IBM, again, this is back in 2014, 90% of all data in the world is less than two years old. Humans are not programmed to keep up. And yet turning data into intelligence and intelligence into strategy and strategy into action remains largely human power what inevitably comes next are marketing intelligence engines that process data and recommend actions to improve performance based on probabilities of success think about it are we really that far off from an automated marketing strategy in which the marketer's primary role is to curate and enhance algorithm-based recommendations rather than devise them humans are limited by their biases beliefs, education, experiences, knowledge, and brain power. All of these things contribute to our finite ability to process information, build strategies, and achieve performance potential. Algorithms, in contrast, have an almost infinite ability to process information. They possess the power to understand natural language queries, identify patterns and anomalies, and parse massive data sets to deliver recommendations better, faster, and cheaper than people can. They already do it in healthcare, financial services, and customer service. And it will not be long before bots, multiple linked algorithms aimed at performing one task, descend on the marketing industry. As Steiner says in Automate This, the next field to be invaded by bots is the sum of two simple functions, the potential to disrupt plus the reward for disruption. So I went back last night and reread that because that is like, it took 10 years. I said, not not long. It was 10 hmm. years, a decade before I actually heard a company that is pursuing that vision that seems to actually have all the components of putting that together. They're combining hmm. knowledge and experience of their own company, the proprietary data of 35 years of digital transformation strategy. They have Epsilon within their publicist group. So they have all this data. They said, what, I think Artur said 2.3 billion profiles on people around the world um, and yeah. thousands of attributes. And they talk about data as the superpower for their people. So that was, again, I don't know if you thought about this, Mike, but that was like, as soon as he said this, I was like, oh my God, like this is it. Like 10 years later, here, here we are. We're finally building the intelligence engine, at least within advertising. It's still not a global vision for like mm. all marketing dollars, but at least within advertising, it seemed like it.
1: Yeah, that was actually the number one reason I wanted to focus on this as a main topic is it's literally why the Institute came into being. This is the first thing I thought of. And also notably, at least from my perspective, this is one of the first, if not the first, like pretty clear vision I've seen from a major agency. Plenty of people are doing plenty of things and I've seen really cool examples, but I don't know if I've seen one that has this like breadth of vision um in the agency world did was that kind of your perspective or have you seen more like this from other uh, you know at least among the big handful of agency groups out there
0: yeah honestly like it's it's, is definitely in the agency world is the first i've seen that clearly has kind of laid this vision out again we're not saying it's all reality we're not saying they're gonna even like nail it all but we're Mm -hmm. saying like to lay out the vision saying we're going for it It's the first I've seen. And, you know, we've talked about this idea that in the future, all businesses, there'll be three, three types in every industry, AI native, AI emergent and obsolete. So the AI native is you just build a smarter company from the ground up, just infuse AI and you just build a smarter version, needs fewer human resources, fewer fewer financial resources, because you're going to infuse AI in everything you do. AI emergent is an existing company that has legacy tech, legacy data, legacy clients, uh, existing employee base, and they create a vision to evolve and become a smarter organization. This is it. Like this Mm -hmm. is the AI emergent company that we envisioned, you know, Mm -hmm. last year when I wrote the future of all businesses AI are obsolete. Um, so it's, it's one of the best overall visions I have heard, uh, for what an organization become. And there was a few things that, that jumped out to me. Um, and I'd love to hear Mike, if there was any that, that, you know, you really uh, saw as significant, but A couple of things they said is, uh, AI will never replace great creative minds, but it will push the boundaries further. So I like the fact that they were addressing creativity, which is obviously what they do. They said the approach to being data-led, but human first. So I liked the idea that they were kind of looking at that. They laid out five key areas where they were going to apply this core AI to supercharge their people. And throughout each of the five, so it was insight, media, creative, software, and operations they they bullet pointed out like the three elements of each of those and it was all related to faster more accurate more innovative so in each of those areas they were basically saying with insights with media with creative how can we be faster how can we be more accurate how can we be more innovative do things that haven't been done um they talked about a hundred trained micro agents that are like performing tasks within their system which i thought was interesting the 330 million euros over the next three years It was fascinating to me. They said they're financing it through efficiency gains. Mm -hmm. So they're this again, this AI emergent company, like what should it be? They're not taking the gains from AI and cutting staff. At least that's what they're saying they're not doing. They're taking the financial gains and reinvesting it in two things, their people and their technology. Mm -hmm. So I love this idea of reskilling, upskilling people with the money being generated from the efficiency gains of AI. Um, they said it will allow our people to do things tomorrow that they can't do today. And so my overall take is this is the vision for an AI emergent company. This is what a CEO should be doing right now. So if you're, if you are a CEO listening, or if you work for a, a company, this is the kind of thing you should be expecting in 2024 from the CEO of a company to lay out a clear vision with their leaders for what they can become. They acknowledge that it won't be easy. They acknowledge that it'll be experimentation iteration, but it's a worthy pursuit. And Mm -hmm. so my feeling is like, it's not going to be a straight line. There's going to be bumps. Um, There's going to be lots of ways it can go wrong that the tech doesn't deliver on what they're showing in the video. But resiliency and leadership and a clear vision and like a will to see that vision through can get them further along than their peers. And that's what it's all about. Like How can you out-innovate your peers right now. And this mm-hmm. is a really big step. It seems for them to do. that.
1: Yeah. The, um, aspect about how this is going to be used to augment their people is really, I think subtle, but important here in the se- at least in the agency world. I mean, I remember countless times where we did a very good job of trying to arm our people with processes and resources to serve clients on their own. But the moment there's not a process, there's not a resource, you're kind of trying to figure it out on your own, how to best serve a client. And that comes down to the experience, the skills and the seniority, perhaps of the person doing the work. So you get varying outcomes. And even the best person within an agency has no ability to understand what happened two decades ago, that might've been super relevant to the current challenge. So I think having almost personifying the agency as this centralized brain in the heart of the company is really, really interesting to me. And I think it's a very broad blueprint, perhaps, for how any company should be thinking of. Like, what makes your company your company? That should be what you are building these centralized systems to embody.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that jumps out to me is strategy. For me, as the CEO of an agency, you know, for 16 years, I, I you know, ran a professional services firm. Um, strategy is absolutely, in my opinion, the hardest thing to teach. Hmm. So when I would interview people straight out of college, I was trying to assess their strategic ceiling. Like, were they a strategic thinker? Could they connect d- dots? Did they? seek information, like cross-discipline information so that they could actually understand something happened in the economy. Here's what it means to my client in the manufacturing industry. Like strategic thinking is a really, really hard thing. And it's a really valuable thing. It's also an ephemeral thing. What I mean by that is Mike, let's say like you were running four manufacturing clients at the agency and you left Mm. and you were the lead strategist, the knowledge of how to build those campaigns and run those accounts is gone. Like. The, the strategist, like, so th- that to me is one of the potential values of what they're doing here and what the value of AI is, is mm. being able to codify strategic thinking and institutional knowledge so that if someone leaves a company or moves to another area, or if I'm working late at night and I need that knowledge, that I can have a conversation with an internal chat bot about it versus mm. like, oh, Mike's not here or Mike's on PTO this week, like whatever it is. So strategy often is centralized within the brains of the few talented people who can do it within corporations. And so that's a really hard thing to scale. And so I think it's a really fascinating pursuit. And that's why, like, to me, the origin of the intelligence engine was what led me down the AI path, whatever that was, 12, Hmm. 13 years ago now.
1: All right. So in our second big topic today, we just saw Google Bard make a stunning leap in capabilities. Um, It actually just beat out a version of GPT-4 on a top leaderboard that evaluates AI models. Now, this leaderboard comes from an organization called the Large Model Systems Organization, and it shows that Bard using Google's Gemini Pro model is now in second place in terms of performance when compared to a range of popular AI models. Now, this leaderboard in particular takes into account, it says 200,000 plus human votes on which models users prefer. And it also assigns what's called an ELO rating to each model, which is a widely used method of calculating how good players are at zero-sum games like chess. It's pretty popular in rating chess players. Now, BARD still trails behind GPT-4 Turbo, but it now surpasses other versions of GPT-4 and other popular models like Claude and Mistral. Now, at the same time, we've also seen some rumblings online that Google may be soon releasing an advanced version of BARD that you have to pay for. Now, this is unconfirmed at the moment, but it sounds like Google is hard at work kind of recapturing some of the lead when it comes to the AI model arms race. Now, Paul, first up, can you talk to us a bit about the legitimacy of the large model systems organization's leaderboard? It is one of the leading benchmarks out there for AI models. Like why is that?
0: It's a, it's actually a site I wasn't familiar with until recently, honestly. So the way this works is, um. To see how powerful these different models are, usually we wait around for a research paper that comes out and does evaluations and compares them to some human standard of whatever test it is that they're evaluating against. Those can be biased. It can be affected by how the prompting was done. Like there's lots of different reasons why those are hard and often they're outdated. So you'll see a big research that comes out and says these models can or can't do something. And then you read the fine print. It's like, oh, they did this research in july of 2023 when they weren't even using the most powerful model that's out today kind of thing so this leaderboard it's called the chatbot arena uh, is open source research project developed by you mentioned lmsys but also uc berkeley skylab so they say their mission is to build an open source platform um to collect human feedback and evaluate llms under real world scenarios and i actually went to the site it's it's fun (laughs) so We'll Hmm. put the link in the show notes, but it's arena.lmsys.org. And so they have arena battles and what it does, like I went in and played around with it last night, you can put, it'll blind which two models you're going to use, but you give it a prompt and then it gives you two outputs and then you rank which one is better, whether it's a tie, whether they're both bad or which one's better. And that's how this is done. It's actually human rating of outputs. And so you can do an arena battle where you just like, you don't know which model is producing, which thing you just say, which one you like, and then it reveals for you, which model was, which, or you can do a side-by-side. So if you want to go in and see Gemini pro versus GPT 4 turbo, you can give it the same prompt and it gives you the output. And then there's also a leader leaderboard tab. So again, really cool site. The reason it surfaced for me was two tweets last week. So this new, um, leaderboard came out January 26. So there was a lot of buzz in my kind of alerts feed, all the the AI influencers that I follow and trust. So one was Oriol, Oriol Vinales, I think he works at Google DeepMind. And so he had tweeted that evaluation of LLMs is very hard and nuanced, especially academic evals, which are leaked massively. Evals that rely on human judgment are far superior. So it feels good that bar Gemini Pro, the free tier, climbed pretty high uh, on this leaderboard. And then he actually teased looking forward to Gemini ultra release. Hmm. Ultra is coming soon. Hashtag. That was the first thing when I saw this, I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. Like not only did it jump to number two, this isn't the most powerful version of Gemini. Like we, we know Gemini ultra is pending release. And Hmm. so you gotta think that that's probably going to maybe take that leap and get ahead of GPT four, which was the big question mark. Um, the other one that caught my attention was our our uh, our guy, Andrej Karpathy, who we talk about a lot, open AI researcher, former head of AI at Tesla. And he said uh, in a reply to someone else, he said, I pretty much only trust two uh, LLM evals right now, Chatbot Arena. And uh, there was a Reddit one, Local Llama mm-hmm. comments section. So if Andres says Chatbot Arena is the place to look at, then I trust that this is a extremely legitimate uh, LLM ranking system. Right. So worth paying attention to. My main takeaway is I got to try Bard again because <laughs> the I went to look and say, well, which version is this? And so on the bard.google.com site, there's a slash updates page. That, again, we'll put in the show notes. And so this version of Bard Gemini Pro went into Bard on, uh, it looks like December 6th. So they said, BARD is getting its biggest upgrade yet with Gemini Pro. Starting today, we're introducing Gemini Pro and BARD for BARD's biggest update, upgrade yet. We specifically tuned Gemini Pro to be far more capable of things like understanding, summarizing, reasoning, coding, and planning. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think if anything, it just, we've always said, like, I've been hard on BARD personally. It's, it's not been on par with, you know, ChatGPT. But I've also said I wouldn't bet against Google ever in this arena. And I'm very anxious to not only try it again now, but to see what happens when Gemini Ultra becomes a thing.
1: So what kind of steps should business leaders and professionals be taking in light of this news? Like, Should people be switching to Bard now?
0: Yeah, I mean, the way you and I approach this, and I think the way we always teach this is you have to constantly be testing. And this is why it is so hard to make bets on which platform to use and which ones to integrate into your workflows, because they keep evolving as to which is best for which use cases. Um, So I think you have to have a culture of always testing. And again, not everyone in your company needs to be testing. Like, at some point, you have to say, okay, you're all using this system for these use cases. Here's the templates. Here's the sample prompts, like go do your thing. Mm-hmm. But you need to have a component of your team. Maybe it's within your AI council who are regularly testing Quad, uh, Bard, ChatGPT, whatever the, the tools are against the common use cases within your organization. So if you're using it for script writing and blog posts and summarization and like whatever your common use cases are, Someone on your team needs to every 30 days or so or 90 days or whenever the leaderboard changes, go in and run those use case tests against the different systems and see if someone has made a leap forward that changes the kind of technology the rest of your team should be using.
1: All right. So in our third big topic today, we have some big news at Marketing AI Institute and some news that has some kind of wider implications for the marketing industry and business as a whole. So in the last year here, we at Marketing AI Institute have presented to and talked with thousands of marketers and business leaders. And Paul, I know you and I have seen this firsthand, like how executives are scrambling to adapt and devise AI roadmaps. And they face all these complex challenges to adopting AI, things like lack of talent, legacy tech stacks, uh, crazy expanding AI tech landscape, fear of change, industry regulations, privacy, security concerns, mounting competitive pressure, and more. Now, what's become clear from all of this is that our mission here at Marketing AI Institute needs to evolve to pursue what we're calling this North Star of, quote, accelerating AI literacy for all. I believe that's how you put it in a recent post, Paul. And- Mm -hmm. Basically, what this means is that we at Marketing AI Institute believe that you can build a smarter version of any business through a responsible, human-centered approach to AI, but that success requires commitment to AI education and training across the organization. Now, we at Marketing AI Institute hope to play a part in this and moving human-centered AI forward across industries. And the first step, which we announced last week, is accelerating AI literacy through a significant expansion of our online education programs. Uh, This includes two new AI course series, Piloting AI 2024 and Scaling AI 2024, plus a completely reimagined AI Mastery membership program. Now, Paul, before we get to kind of the why here, let's talk about the what. Can you Talk to us a little bit more about these new courses and the membership that are about to be made available
0: to our audience. I mean, it, it it's sort of a continuation of what we set out to do. So, you know, I told the story up front about how we got started in AI, like out of a curiosity and a like a specific problem we were looking to solve for for clients and for the agency. Um, but by 2016, when it when I started the Marketing Institute, like the way I looked at it was, we weren't uniquely capable of building AI. Um, We weren't uniquely capable of necessarily building services around it because we didn't have highly technical people and engineers and data scientists within our agency, but we were storytellers by trade. And that's what we did for clients. It's what we were trained to do. It's what we went to school for. And so... The Institute initiated as, well, let's tell the story of AI and let's see if other people are intrigued by it. And if they are, we'll we'll build something around this. We'll figure out how to like help people along. So that whole idea of approachable and actionable was the original mission. How do we make it accessible to people? That then led to November of 2021. So a year prior to Chad GPT, I introduced this thing called the Million Marketer Challenge, where we were like, okay, there's 13 million marketers worldwide. Let's get a million of them aware of AI, like, let's try and like get people aware of it to take some first step, take a class, read a book, whatever it was. Didn't have to be our stuff, just anything. So we introduced intro to AI for marketers and I started teaching this free 30 minute class every three weeks on zoom. So that class became our like entry point to help people understand this. Um, To date, I think we've had over 17,000 people register for that class. We've done, I think I've done 33 of those. And I've told this story before, like to me, it was kind of like building a band. Like you're going to show up and there's going to be 10 people there. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll show up and there's 100 people there. And then all of a sudden, ChatGPT shows up and we have a thousand people there. (laughs) And so that whole Million Marketer Challenge was sort of like, became unnecessary uh, as a pursuit because ChatGPT took care of that for us because a million marketers tried ChatGPT in like the first 72 hours. So for us, it's always been about how do we make this information accessible? But what happened is after ChatGPT, it wasn't just marketers calling. Everyone started calling. So I was talking to heads of VC firms, presidents of universities, provosts at universities, um, heads of school systems, like you know, K through 12 school systems, government leaders, association leaders, like everyone um, started calling, asking, can you come talk to us about this? And that's what led you and I, Mike, last year to spend a good portion of our year on the road meeting with all kinds of people, it, not just marketers, like everything, lawyers, accountants, um, CEOs. And so in that process, we started to, to really realize. How unprepared the world is for what is happening, and and not again, not just marketing leaders, but CEOs of major corporations. I mean, we have done talks I'm, I'm not going to n- name drop here, but like we have done talks to some of the biggest brands in the world, like in the in the last twelve months. We have sat down with executives from some of these major brands, and again, truly firsthand heard the, the questions they have, the challenges they are facing, the fears that they and their, their employees have around this stuff, the uncertainty about what comes next. And so that led to, okay, we need to keep doing the intro thing, but we need to expand it. We need to like, it can't just be for marketers anymore. We have to really start Mm -hmm. thinking about how do we bring this to, to, to more people. Um, And the piloting AI course that we launched last year, I mentioned at the opening, we had over 800 people took that course in 2023. So it's like, okay, let's, let's get that updated because by like fall of 2023, we were getting the questions, well, when were these courses recorded? Like, are they still relevant? So it's like, okay, we have to, every year let's update piloting. Like we know that's a really helpful thing to get people started. So you take the intro course then what do I do? Okay, here's the piloting series. It's 18 on-demand courses. In eight hours, you can go get a professional certificate and you can be advanced. We have also always known there needed to be something beyond piloting, which was scaling AI. And so I announced plans for that, I think, at Maycon 2022. I, I think I said, we're going to build this. It just took a year. And so we're now in the midst of building the scaling AI course, which is for um, kind of director level and above, or people within AI councils, it's designed for the people actually going to do this stuff. So it gets into um, how to build an AI council, building your AI roadmap, generative AI policies and, and responsible AI principles, state of AI. It's it's really more for the leadership level. And then the final piece of what we announced um, last week is this idea of AI mastery as a membership. Because what we'll often hear is, hey, we took piloting. It was awesome. How do we stay on top of this? How do we actually like keep applying this knowledge? And so I realized like we had to reinvent what our membership model was to be much more about competency and mastery of these topics. And that's where the idea came like, okay, let's start doing like quarterly demo days where we're showing the technology being applied to specific use cases. Let's do ask me anything sessions every quarter where people have a chance to actually get in and learn this. Let's do a state of each quarter where like, what are the trends that matter this quarter? Um, And so that's really what the education program became. And then in the process, as you were saying, this AI literacy for all, it's like, I mean, I just, I journal stuff. So I don't know if other people work like this. This is how my mind works. Like I'll, I'll go give a talk, you know, to a, like there was one in particular, it was a, a major um, technology company, like a fortune 100 technology company. And I'm like on the flight back thinking that that was like wild, like to, to hear a company that has been doing AI for 20 years, like at mm-hmm. least 20 years, but not within the operations and the marketing and the service and the, and, and the sales of the company, they were doing it in the technical side and the product side. And to realize even a company like that doesn't have the knowledge they need. And then like the next day you go meet with the president of a university. And it's like, they are they don't know how to integrate this into classrooms and how to find professors to even teach this stuff. And then you go talk to like a nonprofit, like a board I'm on, and they're like, how do we use AI? And so- what I realized is like we have this kind of broad knowledge. The the listener base and the you know the audience for the podcast is not all marketers, not even close. Like we hear from mm. people all the time on LinkedIn. Reach out to you and me, Mike, who are not marketers. And so it really started to evolve as I was journaling my thoughts after a different meetings or random times. This AI literacy for all just really kind of kept coming back to me of like, we we need to do more. Like there's such an urgency right now to help people understand this and to help prepare other professionals to go out and educate. Like it can't be all us. Like there's nothing about our model that has ever been, Hey, we're going to like keep this all in house and no, we're not going to share what we know. And, and, you know, we want to make it proprietary so we can make as much money as we want. I don't, I don't care about that stuff. Like we're building a really good business. It's, It's a very strong business now. It wasn't a year ago, but like we're in a very good place from a business perspective. And my feeling is we, we don't focus on our revenue, our growth. We focus on telling the story to have the greatest impact, and all that other stuff take care takes care of itself. Now, don't get that mix up like I don't like run the business, you know, to be a profitable business. We do, but it is not why we do what we do. Um, and so I think that you know, all the time we're spending on the road, all the time we're investing in free education and training through like our intro course and like speaking series. It's just like where we're going. And the thing I said in that post was marketing Institute and the marketing industry are just the beginning. Now I'm not going to announce like other stuff that's coming right now. It's not the time for it, but there are other things that we're going to be announcing probably in the next, like, I I don't know, like two months or so that'll make it a little bit more clear and tangible what, what AI literacy for all really is going to mean. But I just think it's really important that that we think about that as a North Star. But if you're like a listener to this show, that maybe you think about what role you can play in that too, because we have to get companies prepared. We have to get governments prepared. We have to get nonprofits and associations and like school systems. Like all these people need to understand AI at a deeper level so they can figure out what it means to their domain, their industry, their business. And that's gonna take a whole like community of people moving in the same direction.
1: That is a great rundown. And I would just, the final note I would add to that is that if you do wanna explore some of these options for yourself and your team, they're all right on the website. If you go to marketingaiinstitute.com, click on education, you can see intro to AI, piloting AI, scaling AI, and the mastery membership all right there. So you can learn a little more about everything that Paul just ran through.
0: And the other thing I'll say is like, we, we have a marketing AI conference on coming up September 10th to the 12th. And I would really encourage you to like, be there. Like if you wanna be a part of this, like this kind of broader vision of like, okay, let's spread AI literacy as fast and far as we can. That's probably like the next point where we're gonna get those kind of people together. And, and mm. that's part of the value for me and like why I love running the event is to see the community sort of like emerge and spread with us just facilitating the meeting of people mm-hmm. and i've heard so many stories about like businesses being started from people who've met at macon um the community you see like slack community now is over five thousand people um just like the way people are interacting and starting to kind of take it and run and, and make it their own and so I would say like you know if you can be at Maycon, uh do that. And then as we announce some of these other things, like hopefully there, you know, you'll find a a spot that you can get involved and and start uh you know really being a part of expanding AI literacy within your network and, and your community.
1: All right, let's dive into this week's rapid fire topics. So first up, we have uh, an interesting breakdown of the career trajectory of some really important people in AI. So back in 2017, a team of eight researchers on the Google Brain team, which is now part of Google DeepMind, published a research paper titled Attention is All You Need. Now, this paper invented the transformer architecture that became the basis for chat GPT from OpenAI. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer and basically led to the acceleration of AI technology that we're experiencing today. Now, Paul, you had mentioned at the top of this episode, you're working on some new AI courses. And we just went through some of what those are. Uh, you recently revisited the paper as part of your work there, and you tracked where the eight authors are now. And what you found is pretty incredible. All of them have left Google since the paper. Seven of them have founded AI companies. And those AI companies have raised a combined $1.3 billion to date. And they're sure to raise more in the future. Can you walk us through this a little more in depth? Like, Why is this small group of people so important? And how are they shaping the future of the AI we're going to see tomorrow?
0: I just think they're fascinating to track. Like, so what I was doing is the second course in the piloting AI series is a new generative AI 101 course. And so as I was building that, well, I guess it was last week or two weeks ago, um, I was looking back at that attention is all you need, all you need paper. And we've talked about that paper on the podcast before. If you've been a listener for a while, you've probably heard you know about that paper in 2017. And we've also talked about a number of those people who were authors on that paper who have since left. So like, uh Noam Shazir, who's the uh, founder and CEO of character.ai. They're mm-hmm. series A, 150 million. We've talked about Aiden Gomez, co-founder and CEO of Cohere, um, Series C $445 45 million, and rumored to be raising another, you know, half a billion to a billion. So we've mentioned a few of these people, but I had never really dug into who were all of these people. So yeah, I just kind of stopped out of a curiosity. And there are uh, there's a co-founder and CEO of Essential AI that's raised 64 million. Um, another co founder of Essential AI. Uh, then we had Noam, I mentioned, Jakob, who's, uh, I, I don't know how to sell it. say who's Uzkaret, I think maybe, Inceptive, they've raised 120 million. Uh, Leon Jones, Sakana AI is 30 million. Uh, Lucas Kaiser is at open AI, he's a researcher now. And then I- Ilya uh, Poluskin uh, has Near Protocol, which is like a Web3 AI company, 533 million. So I don't know, I've, I think I've, talked about on the show before, like one of the ways we stay in the loop on what is happening and what's coming next is by reading the research papers. The irony of this paper in 2017, as I think we've talked about before, is it wasn't even perceived as a big deal within Google. Like it wasn't until like a year later that Google actually started building around this stuff and realized like, oh, this, we might be onto something with this, but they opened up that paper and gave it out. And that's what led to ChatGPT being built on it. So just the fact that it was so influential, it was so under I don't know, appreciated, but like, they just didn't get it like the significance at the time. And that's what often happens with these papers. And is like in the rearview mirror? It's like, wow, that was a big deal. Like, how did we miss that being a huge deal? And so it's fascinating to me just to kind of keep up with this. And then what I'll do is when I see a significant paper, I will go follow all of the authors on Twitter and add them to a list. And then I keep track of Who those people are and then how we kind of like follow ai industry is like well who are they connected to who do they talk to who do they retweet and that's how i build like my network of influence of who when something happens like the chatbot arena are they talking about it and if they're all talking about it then it's obviously significant so that's kind of our path of discovery in a way
1: so next up google just announced a new ai video generator It's called Lumiere, and it uses AI to generate five-second videos. Now, five seconds does not sound like a lot, but this is a bit of a big deal. Uh, The publication Ars Technica laid this out pretty well. They said that Google's tech is designed to handle both the space, where things are in the video, and time, how things move and change throughout the video, aspects simultaneously. So instead of making a video by putting together many small parts or frames, Lumiere can create the entire video from start to finish in one smooth process. So basically, uh, if you've used any type of AI video generator, they're pretty cool, but you do see a lot of this kind of weird stuttering and shifting in AI generated videos. And that's because they're made in this way of putting together, you know, a bunch of smaller frames. But Lumiere doesn't seem to do that nearly as much thanks to its unique approach to video generation. Um, We only have demo videos to kind of go off at the moment but they do look pretty smooth, seamless, and convincing. Now, Google has not revealed when or even if this tool will be made available to the general public, but it does seem to represent a step forward when it comes to AI for video. So, Paul, I kind of wanted to ask you a big picture question of what does Lumiere mean for this next stage of AI for video that we're going to see in the near future?
0: Yeah, this is one where I'd turn to our favorite new tool perplexity, <laughs> because <laughs> I read like the, the research paper and like the information on it as I was, like, well, this is really technical. So I actually asked perplexity, what makes Google's Lumiere video diffusion model so significant? How is it different from uh runway Pika, 11 labs are doing. Mm-hmm. And so just the, the quick was a significant advancement in the field of video synthesis technology due to its ability to create realistic, diverse, and coherent motion in videos. It's achieved through the novel space-time unit architecture that you mentioned, which is a departure from traditional it synthesizes videos in a single pass, unlike most existing models that use cascading approach, resulting in better temporal, cons- temporal consistency and motion quality. Now, temporal consistency is a term you hear a lot. Runway talks about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best explanation for that is it refers to the model's ability to maintain a consistent and smooth transition of frames over time. Contributing to realism and the quality of the synthesized video. So, if you take one image and like frame to frame and it starts like distort a little bit, the temporal consistency is like photo quality, like it's the same, you know, as you move from frame to frame. So, it seems like whatever they've done here is an advancement in that way. My main takeaway at a really comprehensible level is 2024 is the year of AI video. So, like, Last year was the year of text for sure, like major leaps forward in that with GPT-4, the language model. We started seeing some major innovations with Runway um, back in March and April when they started announcing things with Gen 1 and then Gen 2. We saw Pika emerge recently, Eleven Labs, HeyGen, Google Meta. They're all pouring tons of money in and it seems like we've now had some of the breakthroughs needed for video to become a massive thing. So I think, you know, if last year was kind of images and text, this year's is more in the video and audio. We're just going to see a lot of innovation and a lot of like practical applications that the average person can go use, much like you can now go use an image generation tool uh, at, at any point. And so I, the other thing I think is you have to look at all these individual advancements from Google and assume at some point they all come together under Gemini. So if you want to imagine like what can BARD be, imagine being able to create any kind of quality image you want. Obviously the text piece, audio, video, all of it. It can understand it, it can create it, code. Um, I think that's where Google's going is whatever we see here, assume it all eventually is under one multimodal model and that we will have the ability to do all of these things in one centralized chat interface.
1: So also in some Google news, they are now baking what they're calling "quote experimental writing feature into Chrome. So the company says this feature will help you write with more confidence on the web. And to use it, you'll right-click on a text box or a field on a site when you're using the Chrome web browser and click help me write. Now, this small sounds like a small change, but it could have a pretty big impact given that a whopping 63% of all internet users use the Chrome web browser. Now, Paul, you posted on LinkedIn that the proliferation of AI writing tools is hard to comprehend and creating an increasingly confusing tech landscape. Can you tell us what you mean by that and how does Chrome fit into that landscape?
0: Yeah, I, I just highlighted like, because I was thinking about it, like I'm reading this Chrome thing, I was, oh, it sounds kind of cool. And their use cases, they say writing on the web can be daunting, especially if you want our to take your thoughts public spaces. Um, so to help you write more confidence on the web, including well-written reviews, writing a friendly, uh, crafting a friendly RSVP to a party or making a formal inquiry about apartment or rental. Well, if I have a Chrome extension, like a Grammarly, HyperWrite, whatever, uh, I already can do that. Like, do I, do I need Chrome's actual Chrome built-in tool to do it if I already have an extension that can do it? Which then led me to like, well, this is obviously just a pilot for like broader expansion of writing capabilities within Chrome. So what if I assume what's going to happen is Google Bard is going to be built into Chrome, and now if I'm in Google Docs or if I'm in LinkedIn or if I'm in HubSpot, I'm just going to be able to use Google Bard right within Chrome. Sixty-three percent of the world, like two and a half billion people on the internet, will just have Bard built into Chrome. And so now all of a sudden you have this massive distribution of maybe the most powerful model in the world if Gemini Ultra becomes that where I can already write everywhere. So then what, what do I what do I need? I, so if I went through my own list, I have Google Bard already for free. We have Google Workspace Duet AI internally that we're testing. I have Anthropic Claude which is great. I have Inflection Pi, I have ChatGPT Plus personally and we have the team license for ChatGPT Plus. I have Writer, I have Jasper, Perplexity, Grok, LinkedIn AI Writer, which I probably won't need if Chrome can do it for me. HubSpot AI Writer, which I won't need if Chrome can do it for me. So this isn't even a complete list. I have all of these tools that I can use to write content. Hmm. It is a really complicated environment for you and I who live this stuff every day. Like I don't, I don't even know which one I should use anymore. <laughs> like, right. And so if Chrome, if Google. Does what we were just talking about and builds this truly powerful multimodal model, and they inject it directly into Chrome, so it's super easy to use. What do I need anything else for? So now it just becomes this like, how how do I ever decide what to scale my company on when it's like Mm. constantly moving piece? So I was more just saying like I empathize with the people that are having to make these decisions right now. It's why we're going to have a session on this at the AI for Writers Summit is like. What do you do? Like if you're the CMO and your job is to figure out what AI platform to train your team on, and there are literally dozens, and it seems like next two months, Google may be the best option again until OpenAI does GPT-5 and then maybe it's them again. Like, how do you decide this stuff? And I I don't actually have a great answer. Like, um, I was just more like posing it as like, uh, hey, I'm with you. Like, if you're feeling overwhelmed by this, like, so are Mike and I, and we do it for a living.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So buckle up, because in the U.S., we are starting to see AI deepfakes that are designed to influence the upcoming presidential election. We just saw news that a robocall that made the rounds in New Hampshire is now being investigated because it appears to have impersonated President Joe Biden using an AI-generated deepfake of his voice. This fake phone message encouraged voters not to cast ballots in the New Hampshire primary and instead save their vote for the general election in November. What's more, Wired has published a story that quotes two experts who claim that the deep fake audio was made with technology from Eleven Labs, which is a major leading AI voice generation startup. Eleven Labs actually just became a unicorn as well with its recent Series B fundraise of $80 million. Now, just to clarify, Eleven Labs technology was used by some party to create this. The company itself was not the one creating this deepfake. Now, Paul, this is not the first and certainly won't be the last deepfake we see trying to influence the election. Can you Kind of talk to us a bit about your perspective on 11, how 11 labs fits in here and maybe give us a sense of just how easy or hard it is to create these types of deep fakes.
0: I, I mean, 11 labs is just one of the probably dozens or hundreds of tools that could create this, like it's, it's, you know, I, mm. it, it's going to come from everywhere. Like we've talked about this before. I, I mean, someone could run a podcast just on deep fakes and just talk about the 10 biggest deep fakes each week. Like it, it's mm. going to be that prevalent. Where it's, you know, my concern is it's going to be so commonplace that people are just going to tune it out and not realize what a massive deal it is to society that we just don't know what's real anymore. And this isn't just audio. It's going to happen with video. You know, it's certainly going to happen with images. It's going to happen with text. Um, you know, it's going to happen where politicians are going to claim that things they actually said were just deep fakes. Like, mm-hmm. that's inevitable. Deep fake news, we'll probably call it. Um it it it's just gonna be a train wreck. Like again, I, I've said this for like I I wish I had a an optimistic take on this and that there's a solution around the corner. There isn't. Regulation isn't gonna fix this. The problem right now, as we'll talk about in the next topic, is like the social media platforms. Mm. You know they're the ones that are supposed to kind of gatekeep this a little bit, but in reality, this kind of stuff generates tens of millions of views or listens or whatever. And so monetarily, there's not massive like incentive for them to actually solve this problem. Um, I I just I have nothing hopeful to say. <laughs> I really <laughs> really wish I did. It's just gonna be, it's gonna be really bad. Well,
1: unfortunately, our next topic doesn't have a lot of hope either here because uh, the White House just released a statement calling for legislation to protect people from fake sexual images generated by AI. And unfortunately, this statement came in response to a very highly publicized fake sexualized photos of the singer Taylor Swift that have proliferated on social media recently. These images appear to have spread primarily on X, and one of them got up to 45 million views, according to The Verge. X was slow to take down the images, and they still appear to exist in other places on the platform, though I think they've taken action against some of the main accounts. Now, Paul, obviously this is like an uncomfortable topic and a nightmare for anyone it happens to, whether or not they're famous, but the high-profile nature of this incident is drawing attention. Like, If one of the most famous people in the world can have this happen to them and there's nothing to really do, like what, if anything, can or should be done about this?
0: Yeah. I mean, a a few thoughts, I guess. Like, one, this goes to the point of what I was saying, like X, you know, it's 45 million views. Like, the way X's business model works is it Mm -hmm. pays people to generate views and clicks and engagements. So there are people spreading these images who are getting paid by X to spread these images. You get a million views, I don't know how much money you make. I don't know how, like how exactly the model works, but creators are paid to spread conspiracies, deep fakes, synthetic content on X. It is the business model. I don't know how you fix that. The way they solved it as of (laughs) yesterday I saw was they, they basically shut down the ability to search for the content. So if you go try and search for it right now. It's probably not going to turn any results because they basically turned off that capability for one person. Right. Because it's Taylor Swift. They can do it. But if it is the average person or, you know, a B list or C-list celebrity, they're not shutting off search at X for it. They don't care. Like, it's just yeah. not, they're not solving for it. Um, so that's one. Two. The only repercussion we have right now is existing laws. So obviously this is illegal if they could ever figure out who did it, but they don't have the resources to go track these people down and it spreads so fast, it's hard to find the origin point. So that's not a solution. My bigger concern is what you alluded to. Like, this is just a high profile example of this. This can be done to anyone, Mm. anywhere, in schools, bullying through this kind of stuff, like This is when I get asked the question, what do you lose sleep over? This is the stuff I lose sleep over. And so I don't know what we can do other than awareness. And I don't know, maybe part of what we're, we're, you know, our mission moving forward is to try and find some way to create some positive outlook for where this can go and how we can solve for it. But it's a really messy problem and there's no obvious solution sitting in front of us right now. So, Paul, in other news, you
1: recently posted about the things that AI can't or shouldn't do in response to uh, some content posted by Greg Brockman, who's a leader at OpenAI. And you wrote as part of this, the most powerful models we have aren't replacements for humans thinking deeply about challenges, putting in the work and taking ownership of outcomes, no matter how much AI assists along the way. This seems like a really important reminder um, that I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about and what prompted it, because we do spend a lot of time encouraging people to find new use cases for AI, but it sounds like there are some things they shouldn't be trying to apply AI to in their daily work or life.
0: It was a, like an optimistic look. So again, coming off of like the last couple topics, I think it's good to switch gears and, and head toward the <laughs> optimist side. And I, I felt like so it was the tweet from Greg Brockman was on January 23rd. We'll put the link in the notes it said, it's hard to describe how much you learn by actually doing, by carefully considering all factors, making a decision and then taking responsibility for the outcome unlocks wisdom that cannot be arrived at any other way. So the reason I thought it was significant was because it's Greg Brockman, like this is the yeah. co-founder and president of OpenAI, And so my thought here is like he probably has access to more powerful versions of ChatGPT than we have. I think I talked about this maybe on last week's show. He likely has access to whatever GPT-5 is going to be. Mm. And if even having the most powerful models in the world, he is still acknowledging the human element of all of this, I think that's significant because he's looking out and saying, like, there, there are things we're going to need humans for. And so the things I had called out was, you know, the value of experience, of having been through things, of seeing things, of having domain expertise, to know if what the the AI does is any good. Like I can ask AI to generate an image, but I'm not a graphic designer. I don't know if the image is any good. I can ask it to create a a video for me with Lumiere or Runway or Hmm. Pika. I don't know if the video is any good. I'm not a video producer. Like I'm not a domain expert. I just have the ability to kind of do these things. And so I think the mix of experience, domain expertise, human intuition, those seem to be defensible moats for humanity. Like they seem to be things that no matter how much the AI assists us moving forward, the humans still need to think and we still need to have agency over key actions and decisions. Mm. And if that's not gone away for Greg, I don't think it's going away for any of us anytime soon. So that is not saying AI is not going to play an increasing role in strategy. It's not going to play an increasing role in everything we do. But I do think that there is a significant place for experience, expertise, intuition, common sense. Those are things that we stick to. Now, what that means for your job, you know, for within your company or what you do next in your career path, I don't know. Like, I can't tell you five years from now what that's applied to. But I think those are relatively safe things when I look out and say, what are humans still going to be doing in three years, five years, 10 years?
1: All right. Last but not least, Paul, you posted a really helpful tip on one way to easily apply AI throughout your day that basically anyone can take advantage of. Can you walk us through what that is?
0: Yeah, so this was a fun one for me. So I I use on my phone, like probably many of you, I, I use dictation, like just voice memos, whatever it is, like as I'm driving the car, as I'm walking, as I'm responding to emails, like it's just way easier than typing out on my phone. So I use voice all the time on my phone. I don't think to do it on my computer all the time because it's Hmm. not as like natural. Um, So what I put up there was one potentially overlooked way to use AI every day that can save you a reasonable amount of time and reduce the stress of your fingers and wrists for those who type all day is to use dictation capabilities built right into your computer. So Mike and I have MacBooks. Um, I put up how to do that. You just go to settings, click keyboard, turn on dictation, and then pick the shortcut you want. I use press the control key twice. So as I'm sitting here, if I'm going to go, you know, type an email, or if I'm going to put a LinkedIn post up, I can just click the control button twice and just talk. And and then I can edit that. And it's way easier than actually typing out the whole thing and way faster. Like we speak faster than we type, the vast majority of us. Um, and the thing I think has been a bit of a breakthrough is the accuracy and speed, at least on the Apple has gotten way better. Now, if you're a Apple MacBook or you know computer user, but also a Google workspace user, what I have noticed is it doesn't work in Google Docs, but mm. you can actually go up to tools, voice typing within Google Docs and do the same thing right within your Google Doc. So my whole point here was, I guess, a lot of times I personally overlook this and I assume other people do as well, to use the same voice efficiency you gain on your mobile device on your computer. The capabilities are built into there, they're good and getting better. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of like a quick hack, fun way to apply AI every day that, I mean, it's saving me, you know, maybe it's 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. I don't, I don't know, like, but it saves time and it, it, it's a really nice kind of fun way to, to use it.
1: Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you for walking us through everything happening in the world of AI. I want to remind our listeners this week and every week that we have a weekly newsletter that we also publish to our audience to help you stay up to date on what's going on this week in AI. It includes not only what we've talked about today, along with some more in-depth analysis, but also all the this week in AI topics that we didn't get to cover. And we literally have, you know, 10, 15 of them every single week that we can't possibly get to in a single episode. So if you are interested in staying up to date in a single newsletter on what's going on in AI for marketing and business, go to marketingaiinstitute.com, click on resources and click on newsletter to subscribe. Paul, thanks again.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. And if I reminder, you know, definitely subscribe to the podcast if you aren't ready, but leave a rating and review. Like We really appreciate hearing from listeners you know, what you find valuable. Um, so you know, please do leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast network. And keep sharing it. We hear all the time with, oh, I send this to so-and-so and and we love that. So, you know, definitely pass it along to coworkers and friends if you find the show valuable. And we will be back. I think next week is a regularly scheduled week. So we will be back next week. Uh, Everyone have a great week. Thanks for being with us.